Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Linda Shia and Avichal Garden. Linda is the co-founder of Scalar Capital, which is a crypto asset fund. And before that, she was a product manager at Coinbase, which was part of the summer 2012 YC batch. Avichal, who's been on the podcast before, is a managing partner at Electric Capital. They're a value fund for digital assets. He's also an expert here at YC, and prior to that, he was the Director of Product Management at Facebook. All right, here we go. Let's just start with a quick intro. So, Linda, after you. Hi, I'm Linda. I'm co-founder of a crypto hedge fund called Scalar Capital. Uh, We focus on long-term investing in this space with a strong emphasis on privacy coins. Um, And then before that, I was a product manager at Coinbase. I joined pretty early on and just been passionate about cryptocurrencies for a very long time. Cool. Hey, I'm Avichal. Um, uh, serial entrepreneur, part-time at YC. Uh, I've been in crypto since 2013, um, actively invest in currencies and, and uh, various companies. Uh, and this is uh, where I spend a lot of my time thinking about the way things are going and what the future holds and where we'll end up in the next 10 years, because I think this is a pretty fascinating area. Cool. Well, it sounds like you guys are the right people because we have a ton of crypto questions. And let's start with definitions. I know a lot of the listeners probably know or have a loose understanding of what blockchain, what Bitcoin, all of this stuff is. But just so we establish kind of a ground truth, uh, Linda, why don't we start with you? Uh, What is a blockchain? A blockchain is essentially a decentralized public ledger where you can have a recording of all the transactions that have happened on it without having a centralized entity that's kind of dictating what what happens or someone that can manipulate the data. And all of this is just done in a decentralized fashion. So you don't have to trust uh, who's actually controlling this data. What are the other things that people ought to know? Uh, I think that so it's important to separate like a cryptocurrency from um, new new coins that have come out that are essentially people refer to them as crypto assets because mm-hmm. it's essentially more than just money at this point. Um, so Ethereum's a smart contracts platform and smart contracts are essentially you can think of it just like um, a contract that is essentially just programmable logic where you essentially have a decentralized network of computers that's executing this logic without having to rely on a centralized source that can get shut down or manipulate the information or data. Mm-hmm. Um, so a smart contract in itself is just really important. And you can kind of, if you want to compare it to Bitcoin, just think of it as a bit more powerful than Bitcoin and that it can be a little bit more programmable. Anything to add? Yeah, the way, um, I think that's great. I agree with everything Linda said so far. I think the way I think about it, there's like four uh, core concepts. There's blockchain, which is, I think Linda covered well, is distributed ledger. Um, and that has a bunch of properties around who can read it and how you write to the ledger and so on. I think there's this notion of consensus, which is how do we all agree on what gets written to the blockchain and what the universal truth is? And mm-hmm. there are different mechanisms to agree on on the truth. Um, there's the idea of a token or token economics, which is how do we align the incentives of all the actors in the space? And there are different mechanisms to aligning the incentives. Uh, and then I think there's the smart contracting layer, which is assume you have a ledger and you have tokens and people who are agreeing on the state of the universe. Uh, what, what degree of control and programmability do we give on top of that to uh, the user? users of the blockchain or the programmers to, to do interesting things on top of that, which is, I think, where things like programmable money or distributed compute get really interesting. Those are kind of like the four things that I think about in this universe. And you can kind of mash them together in different ways and different chains mash them together in different yeah. ways. Yeah, absolutely. So we should explain those. There are many use cases for uh, distributed ledgers, for programmable money, all of these things. Uh, can we Let's break those apart. And uh, we had a ton of questions about it, but just from broad, uh, broad strokes, what are the use cases you guys see? 
Essentially, whenever there's a middleman that's doing programming logic and saying if then condition um, and is charging fees for that, you can replace them with a smart contract. So there's plenty of use cases for that in the financial system, healthcare, uh, legal system. So I I view that as as really powerful, just automating things and um, allowing there to not be a centralized point of failure. Um, And I think that's one of the most important parts of, of what this produces. Yeah. I think at a high level, um, the way I think about it is there, there are kind of three buckets. There are, there's essentially programmable money and there's a bunch of different facets to that. There's privacy or there's smart contracts getting me used as escrow. And you could argue ICOs effectively are an escrow where you're like locking up some, some ETH mm-hmm. and then you can do something with it on the other side. So it's kind of like programmable money is like one bucket of use cases. Um, uh, distributed compute is another bucket of use cases. It's like you can use all these computers all around the world to execute code. Um, and then the third bucket is distributed apps. So things like prediction markets or distributed VPN networks. Um, and uh, and that's kind of the third bucket of use cases. Um, and, and I think pretty much everything I've seen so far kind of falls into one of those three. And sometimes there's a little bit of an overlap. You could be kind of in two buckets. Uh, but at high level, I think those are the three buckets I think about. Cool. And so to jump into a question from Twitter, uh, JP asks, what are the top use cases you guys think are going to go mainstream in three years? And mainstream may be caveated yeah. by like within <laughs> this community. But yeah. Yeah, the two ones that I think will go mainstream are decentralized exchange and um, and probably gaming, something along the lines of collectibles. Uh, so decentralized can, can we exchange. Just define collectibles. Like, what's an example of that that's been out in the world right now? Uh, so out in the world in the crypto community, there's been crypto kitties. Yep. So you can collect a unique digital cat um, on the blockchain, and so that can never be destroyed. You own that permanently, and so that just got really popular. People were kind of just collecting it, like just digital beanie babies in a way. And you can breed them together and produce new unique cats. Um, but people just love collecting things in general. I mean, that's a that's been very common with like stamps and coins and cards. Like people just love collecting and now and you have a society where you can just collect um, everything in a digital manner and you can freely trade this. And so that pairs well to me with decentralized exchange because uh, so for context, I worked at a centralized exchange where you essentially have um, this exchange controlling user funds. And so um, Coinbase is really trustworthy and I'm fine um, storing my funds on Coinbase. But there are a lot of centralized exchanges out there that um, have risk of getting hacked um, or getting shunned out by regulators running with user funds. So there's there's risk, risk on the custody side. Um, there's also some barriers to entry if you live in a jurisdiction that just something like Coinbase doesn't support or you don't have the right documentation. So I'm really excited about decentralized exchange because you can now have a bunch of people that can participate in these markets and trade anything they want, yeah. trade digital cats if they want. And it's it's really cool. And so more people can just participate in the network at this point. Yeah. Uh, Do you think the same thing is true? Like, are those the use, use cases that happen in the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I think both of those will happen. The, the two others I'd add... Um, or the the big one, the other big one I'd add basically is is programmable money. I think like payment, the payment rails will all get built out. Things like Lightning Network and Plasma, um, or zero fee uh, payment networks that are that are coming up. Um, and I think the merchant side of those things will continue to get better. And so I think payments as a category of stuff will happen. And then um, kind of privacy is as a subset of that too. I think private privacy tokens are actually a thing. Like if you talk to a lot of people, hey, if X Y Z thing went away, would you would you care about it? They're like, yeah, it would be kind of unfortunate if that went away or I'd lose a lot of money because I was yeah. in the ICO. Uh, and then you talk to people and you say, well, would you miss it if Monero went away? And they're like, oh, man, that would, <laughs> that would be really terrible because I actually hmm. use Monero to do something. Hmm. Um, so I think, I think the payment side of things is actually going to emerge. Um, and then, yeah, I agree. I think decentralized exchanges and collectibles are two early, like, real use cases that people are actually 
yeah. using. And and what about the decentralized apps that people are talking about and kind of dreaming about now? What what's the timeline on something like that? Uh, I think probably this is probably a place where we might differ. I think it's probably like seven to ten years out for most of these. I think we're really really early in most of these cases. Okay. Um, there might be one off use cases like uh, uh, Orchid with VPN, where there's that's like a real problem and being a distributed network and a decentralized network yeah. can be uh, can be censorship resistant, and so that's like a core feature of the network. Uh, beyond that, I'm, I'm, I think it'll be, it'll be a while. I think there'll be some early use cases, but by and large, it's going to take several years. Yeah, I generally agree. I think my time span is just a little bit short maybe like three to five, but I think that, um, there's, there's a lot of scaling issues that need to be solved before anything can go mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm, I'm generally pretty optimistic that there's a lot of really smart people working on that problem right now. Mm. And go be more specific on the technical side. What are the scaling issues? Yeah. So with Ethereum, CryptoKitties itself was so popular. Um, so many people are trying to use it. Um, Bitcoin itself, so many people have been actually trying to use Bitcoin that the transaction fees have actually gotten pretty high. Mm-hmm. And at some points it was like average $30 per transaction fee, which is like parallel to a wire at that point. So you, you, you have, uh, so many people. It's, I mean, it's a good problem. So many people want to use it, but, um, it's too expensive and it starts getting really slow. Um, and then in Ethereum's case, I know there's a lot of scaling work being done. Um, so L4 um, is an organization that was funded by um, the Ethereum community grant to essentially work on some scaling solutions. Um, there, there's a lot of different ones that they're tackling. They're specifically working on state channels, which essentially you can kind of, um, if I were to compare this, I, it's kind of just like a bar tab in a way where you essentially have all these like offline transactions where people are just like moving back and forth between each other. And okay. um, you can update um, you can update state and essentially you can update logic. Um, and then only when you want to finalize something, you can move it back to the main chain. So it's just a bunch of off chain transactions. Um, there's also plasma, which is, uh, Joseph Poon and Vitalik wrote about, which essentially you have blockchains within blockchains. And so you just like have all this work being done on these like blockchains within a main blockchain. And if you ever want to, um, Because the idea is that you don't really care about what everyone else is doing. You only really care about what your transactions are all about. So you're like isolated in your own little blockchain. And only when something goes wrong, do you ever have to like leave that blockchain and like go back to the main one and report something's wrong. So there's all kinds of like things going on with this. Um, So just to understand that, like by your own blockchain, are you meaning individual users or individual apps? On a blockchain? Uh, both. I mean, essentially, you can just be isolated in your own world in, in, in whatever application or even individual use cases. So okay. this is very theoretical right now, but there's like work being done on it. Um, there's also TrueBits working on doing off-chain computations. So essentially, you don't want really complex computation mm-hmm. on Ethereum blockchain. You essentially can maybe move that off um, and pay people for computational um, to, to be done. And essentially, the problem is that you have to verify that the work was done done correctly. So they have a really, really cool concept where you essentially have um, forced, you force errors in the network. Hmm. So you essentially, um, every once in a while, the network will do some wrong computation and something that is incorrect. And uh, people who catch that error actually get compensated for that. So you have this whole network where people are just constantly making sure that things are running correctly, because if they catch something, they get a a payout for it. So there's just a bunch of really cool work being done out. So I'm generally pretty optimistic at um, the ability to actually go mainstream. And do you think that uh, many of these apps that we're going to see are going to resemble things that are popular right now? Or is this sort of like very much like the beginning of the internet and we had no idea what was coming and it'll look more like that than uh, you know a dupe of what we have right now? Yeah, I think it'll be... 
That's a great question. I think the early ideas will look like ports of stuff that we're used to. Yeah. Just like the early internet was kind of like the New York Times took the newspaper and literally like mm-hmm. nytimes.com. The headlines were like, images. Yeah. It like looked the text like the was an image. Totally. Yeah. It looked like the newspaper, right? It's just because it's like that's the easiest way to transport to a new platform. And we just couldn't have predicted social media that actually like Facebook and Twitter would be the actual media winners or YouTube yeah. would be the actual media winner. It wouldn't be, you know, like CNN. Um, and so I think, and, and I think it would have, it would have been really challenging to predict something like Airbnb. Yeah. I think if you could have called that, then, you know, well, you, you'd have done quite well as an investor, but also, you know, Airbnb, if you look at their early funding history, it was just really challenging for them because it was such an out there idea, but it was, it was a native idea, right? It was a thing that made sense on the internet. Mm. So I think the, the first set of ideas will be essentially ports and there'll be people trying to sort of, uh, cargo cult kind of yeah. map the ideas over. Yeah. And then uh, a couple of years into it, people who, who are sort of thinking about these things natively will start to play with ideas and say, Oh, well, now you can do this thing that just wasn't possible before, and here's an idea. And what do you know? If I push a button, a car can come to me mm-hmm. instead of me going to someplace, right? And mm-hmm. so those ideas, I think it just takes a while for people to get used to it and for developers to play with the the infrastructure and the concepts and just sort of like poke around and play around and see what's possible. Do you think it will leapfrog by location in any way? So, for example, you know how L.A. was perfectly situated to have cars, but, you know, medieval European cities weren't. Yeah. And so they kind of then get leapfrogged and have the train infrastructure, do you think that will happen with, uh, you know, a decentralized app? So say, for instance, you know, in Africa somewhere where like, you know, money is not the same thing as it is here in terms of like payment accessibility and, and, and most things. Um, will they take off in different places first or will that not be the case? Uh, personally, I, I never thought cryptocurrencies were going to take off in the U.S. or anything at first. I think it's going to be in countries where people don't have bank accounts primarily and they now need a method of actually storing their own funds um, or countries where the currency is just getting um, inflated away. And so the currency is not valuable. So I find mm-hmm. that like in certain countries, the use cases of cryptocurrency actually matter more than in, in countries where there's really strong financial infrastructure. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely varies in my case. And, and, and so there's also something like in China where you have all this censorship of using different applications. I could really see decentralized applications taking off in, mm. in China. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just always wondered like, has, is the Valley a good barometer of the popularity of cryptocurrency and decentralized apps or is it not? That's what I've been wondering. That's a good question. Yeah. In some sense, geography is just one as like one specific way to say that there's an underserved market. Yeah. Uh, and I think you will probably see things like the inspiration for new ideas does tend to take hold in these underserved markets. And so geography is certainly one dimension, or you could have argued that, um, uh, you know, uh, college students were, were an underserved market yeah. when it came to social networks. And it was mm-hmm. just like, they were all in one place. There was like an opportunity for a new type of media to emerge. And so, um, you know, I think there will be pockets, even even in developed countries, there are pockets that are underserved. And so the question is really, where are there underserved markets where the new infrastructure gives you some sort of fundamental advantage or some sort of new uh, utility? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a kind of a related question, which is even if that's where the inspiration for the idea comes from, how do the companies that build those products actually scale, which I think is actually a different dimension altogether. Um, and so it's it's you know, if you think about where the bottlenecks for actually building companies are, I think a lot of that is tribal knowledge that's in people's heads. Mm-hmm. It's like, what does it mean to have like a fast growing startup? So Coinbase, for example, is a YC company, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually not a coincidence to me. It's just like <laughs> what it takes to actually build a fast growing startup. It turns out there's a lot of yeah. traditional like best practices about how you hire people and how you structure teams and how you raise capital. And like a bunch of that stuff is 
um, like that tribal knowledge is in people's heads in Silicon Valley. And so I think you could have the inspiration for ideas come from underserved markets, but I wouldn't be surprised if the really big winners in crypto actually sort hmm. of re-centralize around Silicon Valley. Hmm. Feel the same way? Yeah, I generally feel the same way. I mean, there's a lot of developers that are I hear about are working on Ethereum applications in their spare time. Um, yeah. And so you're seeing a, a flock of de developer talent from Silicon Valley into working in this space. And I think that that's where you're going to see a lot of innovation. Although it is it is pretty nice to see that there are like different hubs around the world of blockchain development. So there's like Berlin and I know places in Argentina um, and Switzerland is another mm -hmm. area. So like it's it's pretty cool to see like more hubs pop up in this space. Yeah. And how how much do you think governance and regulation is going to affect those hubs like does it ultimately mean just like there's a certain density of people that can build this stuff therefore i'm moving there or are these tax incentives different regulations actually going to move the market yeah, I think it's really going to move the market. So right now, I think the U.S. is being smart and not trying to um, be overly restrictive because they'll know that it'll push out a lot of the development, especially let's say if you were to just re uh, really um, be harsh on people that were developing on these projects. Yeah. And I think that that would easily just cause people just move elsewhere. You're already seeing the tax incentives play out here. So um, people are registering in Cayman Islands. Um, or Puerto Rico. Or Puerto Rico, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the people are like moving to Puerto Rico yeah. and starting a little like hub over I, I've there. I've heard of people buying houses in Puerto Rico. Yeah, like yeah. Moving. yeah. So you're already seeing that. I actually know a few people that are trying to move out of California, especially because California has really high taxes. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, you see yeah. Nevada plates here all the time. And that's, what, that's what's going on. People have been doing yeah, it for a while. Yeah. not that far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. even even like when you have scenarios where people are like mining in China and then all yeah. of a sudden China starts cracking down on mining, these miners have to move elsewhere and you're seeing like people move over to Washington because electricity is cheap. So there's like this like movement just based off cheap electricity as well so hmm. it's kind of crazy yeah it's pretty fascinating i think i mean the whole regulatory arbitrage angle to this stuff is pretty fascinating it's just yeah. how are governments the game theory around how governments want to um to regulate this stuff is pretty pretty interesting i, I actually think the u.s government has been really really smart about this um and, hmm. and pretty measured and sophisticated because i think they understand um there's a lot of potential for innovation here and a lot of value to be created uh, and they don't want to crush that. And I, I've been actually pretty impressed with how, how measured they've been. I mean, you look at something like the um, the uh, BTC, the Bitcoin ETF uh, uh, paperwork that went in and all these people filing for it. I thought it was it was so clever the way that they essentially pushed back on that. So they didn't actually reject the, the ETF proposals. Hmm. They essentially convinced the people who'd put in the ETF proposals to withdraw the proposals. <laughs> really? Yeah, which I thought was super clever. So they basically back-channeled. I think I, I don't have any inside information, just to be clear. Um but my read on it was what they did was they went to the to the teams and said, hey, look, there are a lot of reasons we can't approve this right now. Maybe it was like, hey, we don't want to inflate the bubble anymore or, you know, whatever else. Um, why don't you withdraw them and let's keep talking? And then that way it wasn't like the government rejected the ETF proposals. It was the ETF proposals are being withdrawn, which is mm -hmm. absolutely the right way to do it, right? If you're like, hey, look, we're going to do this eventually. We just can't do this right now, but we don't want to crush the market. But we also right. don't want to pump up the market. Really smart way to do it. And so they've actually, I think, been pretty sophisticated. Like the regulators in, inside the SEC and the CFTC and so mm -hmm. on, they've been actually pretty sophisticated in the way they're handling this. And what about on the investor side? Like, How do you guys feel about you know accredited investors getting involved in ICOs versus non-accredited? 
Yeah, I mean, that one's hard because I, I really believe in decentralized systems and everyone should have access to this. But at the same time, if something straight up looks like a security token um, it, yeah. and you're you're issuing it in the U.S., I think that rightfully falls under the SEC regulation. So um, I, I do believe in compliance. And that's actually something I, I really like about this new protocol, Harbor Protocol, where they're essentially trying to make sure that the trading of tokens is, is compliant. So mm. you can have some whitelist of just accredited investors um, that plug into the smart contract and essentially say that you can only ever issue tokens to these investors. And there's maybe some um, holding requirement. You have to hold it for 90 days or something. So mm -hmm. the smart contract itself will have the logic that you can't actually trade these tokens. Um, so I, I do think that it's important to be complying with this as long as it's very clear it's a security token. Although I, I really think that there are plenty of cases where like a governance token doesn't fall under that jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to kind of like make the distinction that not all tokens are the same. So. Yeah, agree with all that. <laughs> yeah. the, the risk really is that I mean, the, um, there's there's a whole like philosophical angle to this, right? Which is uh, to what degree should the government be involved in in being somewhat paternal about um, about protecting investors from the from themselves in some sense, right? Mm -hmm. And and these distinctions are arbitrary. It's like if you have a certain amount of money, you get to sort of do whatever you want, and if you don't, then you don't, right? So. Um, and, you know, that's starting to change with crowdfunding regulations that have changed recently. And, and so there is some movement there. Um, so setting aside the kind of philosophical parts of it, I think, generally speaking, trying to prevent scammers in the ecosystem and trying to prevent people from kind of getting built and losing their money, um, I think, is, is important and good. Um, and to the extent that the ecosystem can do that itself, things like Harbor, which I think is, is pretty awesome as yeah. a project, I think the, to the extent that we can kind of like make that easy um, for people to not lose their money, um, or people inside the ecosystem calling out. Like, well, hey, this that's is what I've project. been wondering, right? Yeah. yeah, like because you know the ICO market has been rife with these. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like not necessarily scams, but sometimes straight up scams, yeah, totally. right? Yeah. And it's not actually good for anyone. Yeah, I mean, agreed. maybe it's good for the one scammer who gets a bunch of money. Yeah, but in the long run, it's not good for anyone. Yeah, agree. Yeah, so like, is this the only? What other methods are being put in place to avoid these scams? Yeah, I, I, I'm really hoping people who are in the ecosystem are very aggressive about calling these things out and yeah. and not supporting them. And I think. Um, ultimately, if if there are ways for people to call out these projects and then those projects don't receive any funding, that's that's actually you know like the economic mm -hmm. incentives will kind of play out in the right way. Yeah. Um, and so I think you know people will get smarter about it. People will get more sophisticated about diligence, um, and investors can kind of help. I think the the people who actually are sophisticated and understand the technology and have done diligence and understand how product development works and understand all of these nuances, I think right. actually. Um, getting out there and saying like, Hey, this is the real good stuff. Right. Like Truebit, super interesting project. Um, you know, like, and there's real tech there and the team is really smart and like so on. Right. And just like talking yeah. about it and saying, by the way, this stuff over here, be careful. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I don't want to call anybody out, but like, you know, it's there, there's stuff out there that, that if you just talk to people who are deep yeah. in it, you can sort of like poke and prod and realize that it's, it's a little bit more vaporware. Um, and I think people just need to be more proactive about that. Yeah, yeah, there there was an interesting case where there was um there was a project called Crypto All Stars where essentially you had collectibles of different crypto celebrities. So there was like one for Naval and Charlie. <laughs> um, and so if you like verified on Twitter that you were actually them, the 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 card owner, you essentially got four percent of the proceeds of the card. Okay. And then the creator of the project got four percent. But anyways, this this was like really really popular and people were trading this. Um, and it pretty much like look like a pyramid scheme in a way. Um, 
And someone actually bought the website and, and bought it from the project owners and claiming they wanted to improve it. And they actually um, shut it down. And so they like someone bought it, paid, I, I think it was like $10,000 or something like that. And then just shut down the website and said like, hey, this is like straight up a scam. And like people are pumping the prices on Twitter and, and people are going to lose a bunch of money. So I'm not okay with this. I'm shutting it down. So I thought that was like kind of crazy. Yeah. Right? Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. 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 So things like that are happening as well. Right. And <laughs> yeah. I like I it probably like would behoove me to do some research on the beginning of the stock market because I imagine in the beginning things oh, yeah. were getting pumped in the same way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's that is the root of a lot of this regulation is yeah. people, a lot of people lost a lot of money you know 60 70 80 years yeah. ago and so uh, collectively we all decided hey it's probably better if uh we don't let snake oil salesmen come in and just like take everybody's money it's like better for everybody yeah. um though i think it's fair to say you know maybe it, it, i think it's always good to revisit things that have been around for you know 50 years and say which of these things actually apply today and how should we think about them and how should we evolve them yeah um but you know e- even before it gets to that point hopefully i think there are people in the community that are good about calling these things out and, mm. and stamping out the the fraud before it really happens it's yeah. too big and too many people lose too much money and so what for the people in the community like the folks interested in starting companies where do you think the opportunities are mm. now and then maybe the maybe the real question is where are the opportunities four years from now yeah. that they should start working on right now yeah, to a have a company question. that's a great question um what do you think? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I okay, there's so many applications yeah. that I feel like rely on some sort of identity and reputation system because in the end, like, even if it's um, a decentralized system, like, if you're doing a decentralized marketplace, you still have to trust that the um, person you're buying a good from is actually going to deliver to you. So yeah. I, I think it's really important to have, like, some um, some reputation and identity system that carries with you as you as you use all these different applications. And we're still at the very early days of that. So there's, like, things like Uport and Civic, but um, they're really rudimentary compared to the identity systems that exist in, in uh, like regular financial systems. Um, so I'd really like to see people work on that problem. Um, and another area is that a lot of a lot of projects talk about doing decentralized governance, um, and they say that they're going to use the tokens to actually upgrade the protocol over time. Um, but there's so much research that needs to be done there. So I think there's massive opportunity to really figure out what's the best way to handle um, governance in a decentralized manner. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that's going to be a massive potential yeah uh, i was just taking some notes i i uh i just came up with five that i think are probably <laughs> worth exploring so if, if you're a founder out there and you're like hey what should i be thinking about one crypto puppies yeah. <laughs> that exists already that's yeah that's sorry what a great idea um so i think the first uh linda talked about before is basically scaling solutions there's a lot of actually infra work to be done just around making this stuff actually more scalable yeah um and i think everybody pretty much is in agreement that there's just not enough people actually working at that layer of the problem um and we could we could use a lot more uh, great developers poking around there um i think even more broadly speaking that i think there are components of infrastructure that are missing and so i think identity as a as a component of infrastructure is interesting i think things like oracles um are interesting i think um just this general idea of like, how do we know what's true and what's not true? And, and there are like potentially shared data sets that people would want to cross projects or cross chain projects. Uh, I would bucket all of that kind of stuff inside infrastructure. I think there's financial infrastructure and financial tooling. Like a lot of the early use cases are basically um, payment oriented or, or money oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a bunch of stuff to do there. I think there's a lot of dev tooling to be built. So mm-hmm. it's just like the actual production of a smart contract. How do you test this stuff? How do you deploy it? Um, there's a lot of work to do there. 
And then, um, like a lot of things, I think uh, the early use cases will probably be somewhat trivial and fun. And so I think gaming and collectibles yeah. and things like that will be pretty interesting. And maybe it's truly native stuff like uh, CryptoKitties. Maybe it's markets to buy and sell those kinds of assets. Um, maybe it's uh, games from you know uh, traditional gaming companies uh, sitting on top of crypto somehow to do digital assets inside the game or cross-game digital assets. Um, so I think a, a lot of the like really sort of... Um, fun, trivial stuff that can take advantage of the new technology will, will be a way to bootstrap in. Um, I mean, arguably, uh, I was talking to somebody earlier today about, you know, in some sense, um, ICOs are kind of the gaming use case, right? It's kind of like a gambling, yeah, it is. it's a gambling yeah. use case, right? Yeah. And like, that's actually kind of what's happening is people are just gambling and it's real money. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of makes sense, right? That, that, that would take off is like, it kind of matches the pattern of what you see with early adoption technologies. Uh, yet again, like gambling is an early adopter, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is there a porn crypto thing yet? I'm yep. sure there the, is. I don't. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah, there's yeah, totally. Spank Chain, which yeah. is actually really popular and uses really cool uh, technology. So it's yeah. pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> what is it doing? Uh, so I think it's like uh, webcams uh, where okay. people can just pay Bitcoin or something gotcha, to, right. to them. But um, they use like state channel technology. It's like cutting edge technology in Ethereum, which yeah. is pretty incredible. Yeah. The, one of the um, one of the more awkward things, I guess, with all the early adopter use cases, too, is um, you want to like understand them, but you don't want to go like super deep and like, <laughs> you don't want to like in the ecosystem, you don't necessarily want to be known as the like, spank, like oh, he's spank chain expert. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah. I haven't really, yeah. Seen nobody's it. like really yeah. dug yeah. into it, but everyone's yeah. like, oh yeah, somebody's doing that. But, like, yeah. I don't actually know anybody who's really dug into it too, right. too deeply. Yeah. Especially if you don't like, if you don't massively cash in as yeah. like the spank chain guy, yeah, then that's you're right. like, oh, I'm just kind of around. Yeah. Like that's that. right. Yeah. Uh, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> So what about the actual, I mean, ICOs have been gigantic, right? People have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Billions. Um, yeah, six, billions. Six, I think it was six billion last year is the number I read. Yeah, yeah. yeah and then oh. this year, three billion alone. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. was the largest one so far? Uh, there were a couple. It's probably EOS. Yeah, it's probably EOS. Yeah. I, think, I think they're up to a billion. I think probably. The, they're like two billion now. Jeez. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. So this like fundamentally shifts the paradigm for fundraising. So we, I mean. We've kind of like gone from zero miles an hour to 120 miles an hour yeah. in this conversation. But like for people who don't fully understand when someone raises a billion dollars straight up, <laughs> like what are, what are these, what are the expectations for this company? Like what are people buying? That's yeah. a great question. It, it depends on, on, you know, I, I, there's, there's actually a great amount of variation there too. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, EOS or, or Bancor or, uh, Filecoin slash protocol yeah. labs. Um, or Tezos. I mean, I think uh, across the board, people have tried a lot of different models, everything from um, you're buying a utility token, which is the you know, um, ultimately going to be used for some sort of uh, functional utility inside the network as part of a product yep. to, hey, literally you're giving money to a foundation. That's like literally it's a donation to a foundation and you have no expectation of anything in return. It's like if you if you read the docs, that's actually what you did. You, you donated to a foundation. So it's actually a pretty broad spectrum. And so there's no universal answer to that. Um, uh, and I, I actually think it's it. Uh, it will be interesting to see what happens on the regulatory side on on that. I think in the next you know twelve months, as some of these yeah. things come to fruition, where people don't actually deliver on projects, um, 
you know, I think it's a big open question of, of what actually happens and which of these things are okay and which of them are not. Yeah. What's crazy is like, there's, I mean, you can't even possibly spend that much money on, on developing an application. Yeah. So like, I disagree. <laughs> I guarantee you someone's going to spend the money. Oh my God. I just can't even believe it. But like people now have so much excess capital that they're giving it to crypto funds and being yeah. like, Hey, manage this capital. And now they're like an LP. So yeah. it's like so crazy. That yeah. This some is... of these projects have become funds of funds. Basically. Yeah. Really? I yeah, didn't just know that. Reinvest yeah. In, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and in some cases you could argue, you know what, like I think if the Ethereum community fund is doing an interesting job here where they're mm-hmm. saying, Hey, look, um, Ethereum is actually a real ecosystem. We want to encourage development in the ecosystem. Let's invest in, in teams and companies doing really interesting work that may, may be underinvested in. Like I think yeah. a lot of this infrastructure mm-hmm. stuff is just underinvested in. So let's like, let's give developers an incentive to pay attention there. Uh, but yeah, in certain other cases, it's just like, Hey, we raised $200 million. And by right. the way, that five X. So now we have a billion dollars and we're not actually equipped to handle a billion dollars. We really only needed $25 million <laughs> to build the thing. So what are we going to do with $975 million? Right. And um, so then you also have to be a money manager as that's right. the founder. Mm-hmm. So you're like, how much is liquid? How much is totally. crypto? How much do I pay people? Yeah. Which then oh, I, yeah. I think to Linda's point is, okay, well, we probably don't want to be money managers. So let's go find a money manager. And yeah. then they're handing their money over to people to be money managers. Man, that's yeah, insane. It's crazy. So yeah. on the, on the founder side, what are you guys saying to people that are honestly considering an ICO and they've passed the threshold where you're like, okay, this actually makes sense. You're not just like generating some pyramid scheme. Yeah. You're not just trying to grab money mm-hmm. and, and there's a real reason to do it. What do you tell them? Uh, so, so a very, very few times is it reasonable, in my opinion, to do a token sale. There's a lot of really great projects that can do decentralized applications or create their own blockchain or whatever, but they don't actually need to do a token sale. They can just go traditional equity route. And we've seen that with the, with some projects like Dharma and DYDX. Um, so I actually recommend a lot of, um, projects to go that route because you don't necessarily want to tack on a token that you don't know is actually going to make sense. Yeah. It creates additional friction to the network as well. Um, and there's, there's still regulatory uncertainty as how this is supposed to be handled. Um, so if someone still really wants to do a token sale, I, I recommend that they work with lawyers that really understand this space. Don't try to be cheap with the lawyers. I've heard people be like, Oh, I found some like discount lawyer who's willing to do this token sale. Uh, for really cheap. And I'm like, no, like you want to make sure people have expertise around this and can guide you through things. Um, but I generally also say like, and no one's listened to me on this, but I, I, <laughs> I think they should raise in series. Like there's no yeah. need that you have to raise all that money up front. Yeah. Let's say you really wanted to raise all, all that money up front. You should probably like lock it up for some time. And as you hit certain milestones, right. the funds then release because it can also just sitting on like, $200 million can also kind of hurt incentives of the team being like, oh, yeah. we just have a bunch of money. Like we can just spend like crazy. So I think that the incentives really change. And the last thing which people have listened to me on is um, the vesting schedule of tokens. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really important to just kind of look like a traditional company in that sense is you want to make sure employees aren't just going to leave and cash out their tokens right when the token sale happens. Uh, and on the flip side, you, for investors, you you want to make sure they're aligned with you as well. Yeah. Um, early on, a lot of projects didn't have a vesting schedule um, or lockup for these investors. And the investors just came in and flipped their coins. They got their discount like 20 to 30%. And then during the actual token sale, they just sold everything and they're no longer investors. So you, it really changes incentives. So yeah. it, it's so important to think through how your token model actually works and mm. what are the like, what's the governance of it essentially. Do you recommend for year vesting for employees? Like same deal? Yeah, that's pretty much what I've been doing. So for like one year lockup. For one your, year lockup. One okay, year lockup for, your, for your investing schedule. That's what I've been recommending. But I mean, yeah, it's... It's pretty tried and true. I mean, yeah. I think a lot of these things like vesting... 
um, or you know, being being thoughtful about when you raise money and how you raise money. They're tried and true for a reason, right? Yeah. They're mm-hmm. actually like underlying it all. Is there's a, a group of humans that get in a room uh, or get in a, a you know, Telegram group and, and write some code. <laughs> Uh, and, and those human dynamics haven't really changed. And so things like vesting are important. I think we figured that out, uh, over mm-hmm. the last 20 years that some of these things are really good. Now, I think there are, there are places where you might want to like reconsider them, uh, in, you know, like in, in this new world, like, you know, how much, uh, where's the value accrue? Is it equity or tokens? So are your employees vesting equity or are they vesting tokens? So there are like some interesting questions there, but I think some of these foundational concepts like vesting, they exist for a reason. And I think they're best practice for a reason. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of teams should be adopting these things if they haven't already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. Like, again, when you get a bunch of humans in a room, they create games. And, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. if you raise a billion, I'm going to raise a billion one. Yeah, and, like, totally. that's the game, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, totally. so, so to, like, kind of boil it down, you're saying to founders, like, listen, you don't necessarily have to do a token sale. Yeah. Like, this is not required. So if you're a founder and you're interested in crypto, you can get in, yeah. but you don't have to do this, mm-hmm. right? 100%. And so when it comes back to that, like... Are you saying to them, you know, apply to an accelerator or go and raise money traditionally? Like, what are you recommending them to do in that path? Yeah, I, I think what it comes down to is um, just like outside of crypto and the startup world at this point, um, there are a lot of places to get money. And and I know it's different if you're in different parts of the world. Um, and some places have more um, investor depth and investor liquidity than other For places. Sure. But, um, you know, there there are a lot of ways to raise money. And so you really want to be thoughtful about who you're raising money from and what value they bring to your company. And yeah, you could do the ICO and get a bunch of people to send you some ETH. Um, but what happens if things don't go well, right? Or the, you know, those are the kinds of projects I think that, you know, your, um, your retail investor raises up their hand and says, that person stole my money. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, meanwhile, there, there are all these great, uh, investors, uh, like Linda who have actually been at companies and like started companies mm-hmm. and uh, helped co- scale companies and, um, that's actually who you want involved, uh, right? That's actually uh, who can help you uh, over the next three, four, five years as you build your company. So I think what we're going to see is a lot of people returning to that idea of, oh, well, I could get money from five different places. Who can actually add value to my company for the next three to five years and, and help me build this company? Uh, and so I think we'll see that sort of re-aggregation towards people who actually add value in the early stages. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, that could be an accelerator. That could be an early stage investor. That could be... Somebody who was early in crypto and made a bunch of money, but actually is very sophisticated about how they think about crypto. Right. There are a lot of those people out there too. So it's not to say, you know, people who haven't previously been in the ecosystem are not value add. I think there are actually a lot of people who are crypto native in some sense who really understand this stuff right. and have been in it for years who are very smart and very thoughtful and you want them involved. And so it's, it's really about how do you find people who can add value um, and get them involved in your company and, and being smart and thoughtful about that. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's that's so true. Just because um, when when these projects are doing token sales, they're distributing their tokens to thousands of people, and especially if you did some heavy marketing around that, you end up getting this like pump and dump kind of crowd. And all they're doing is saying like when Moon, when yeah, Coloniax, yeah. like they just want things listed and the price to pump. Yeah. And then if you look at those Slack groups, it's just like mayhem. They're just they're not adding any value. They're creating tons of distraction for the founders. And um, so I think it's so important to have value add investors and not yeah. just try to make money really really quick or something i mean i think you see the micro example in silicon valley already right like if you're a big quotes hot company you can raise from anyone yeah Mm -hmm. it's just about finding the smartest money yeah and so you see that in a larger scale here it's like billions of dollars floating around yeah 100 percent. and i actually think in the last three months in particular i don't know if you're saying this but um it, it seems like uh we have 
moved back into that world yeah. where the really, really uh, good teams in crypto and, and a lot of the teams that have a lot of early momentum are going out and seeking out the high value investors again and saying mm -hmm. like, hey, I don't want to do a public sale. I actually want to find people who can add value to the company and be thoughtful about it. So, um, I mean, I think I, we might look at this historically, you know, in five years, we might look back and say, oh, that was a funny six month window in time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it kind of like re, you know, reverted, <laughs> reverted to the mean, basically. So yeah. Like we, we came I back to the basic principles. I totally. saw some stat on that. It was saying like nowadays, 60 percent of the funds raised in a general token sale is is actually raised in the pre-sale round. Yeah, I so it. it's 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 really shipped the momentum so far. Just in yeah. a year. Yeah, oh, in months. the last few so, months, yeah. yeah like since the beginning of the year. <laughs> yeah. Insane. Yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah, things move so fast in this space. All right, so let's go into some of the questions from Twitter. Uh, King Croesus asks, so what are your thoughts on optional versus mandatory privacy in transactions? Yes, have a lot of thoughts on that. So I essentially think that it needs to be mandatory privacy if you're going to actually have a privacy coin. Um, if, if it's ever, um, if it's ever optional, you get looked at if you're starting to use a privacy feature. Like, why are you using this privacy feature? Do you have something to hide? So first of all, it like paints a target on your back. Second of all, um, so for context, I did, I did blockchain tracing when I was at Coinbase. And so Bitcoin is, um, very easy to trace. And a lot of people give information away about other people. So even if you're being really smart and someone transacts with you, mm -hmm. they give away, away information about you. Um, and so that can happen in a scenario where you only have a small subset that's actually being private and the rest of the, the users on the network are being public. They can give that information away. So I think it's really important to just have mandatory privacy. And that's something I really love about Monero. Um, that's, they have all transactions are private by default. And I think that's, that's absolutely crucial. Yeah. Philosophically, I agree. I think, I think mandatory is the way to go. I, I think it, it creates some interesting challenges though. I think, um, that's a harder pill for regulators to swallow, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, I heard this great story, uh, where in the early days of the internet, uh, you know, like SSL, HTTPS is now like a standard thing, right? And it's, it's on by default in a lot of cases. Um, but actually the Netscape team had to fight to, to make that a, a thing that was possible inside the browser because the government was worried about like, why do you need to encrypt your transactions? Like, you know, are you, are you doing something illegal? Like yeah. why, why shouldn't we have this be public? And it turned out that, um, one of the, one of the selling points was commerce. It's like, you don't want to send your credit card number over the wire unencrypted. Uh, and, and so the fact that there were like real legitimate use cases allowed things like SSL to emerge is like, oh yeah, we should actually allow mm -hmm. that. Um, and so that, that I think is, is actually the, the challenge for the space is if philosophically you agree with Linda, with Linda, which I do, um, I think then the onus is on mm -hmm. us to demonstrate all of the use cases where default privacy is really important. And I mm -hmm. think, um, things like, Hey, look, if people do start to get paid in crypto for their job, well, you kind of don't want everybody to know, uh, mm -hmm. how much money you make and who's paying you. That's like, that's reasonable. I think it gets even more interesting if you start talking about, um, well, let's say uh, you have a particular sexual orientation and you live in a community that doesn't really uh, support that uh, and you're donating to a charity that does. Like, mm -hmm. do you really want people to be able to sniff that out? Yeah. Uh, or you take it even more extreme and you say, well, if you live in, a, in a, uh, a country where the government is not, you know, you might trust the U.S. government, but there might be other governments that you don't trust. Mm -hmm. um, well, do you want, even if that's not your government, do you want that government to be able to sniff out your transactions on a public blockchain? Right. Um, right. And so I think being really concrete about it's not, it's not just a philosophical thing, though I do agree with the philosophy mm -hmm. 100%, is mm -hmm. there are like really practical consequences to this stuff. Um, will we'll make it possible, I think, for regulators to understand why it's so important that, that it be on by default. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and also um, there is this concept of selective transparency in both Monero and Zcash. So you could essentially have this view key where you can share with um, someone to now view your transactions. Um, so this you could share with auditors if you want to be compliant or um, if a charity just wants to display their transactions, they can share their view key to everyone in the world. So the the, the idea is that it, it, it really much just mirrors the traditional financial system. We don't broadcast everything to the world, but we download our bank account statement and give it to someone when they need to see it um so i i don't think like it is far off from what we're just used to right yeah, now. Agreed. yeah 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 so just default private and then if you need to be public on anything yeah, yeah. yeah. um cool so transitioning from that into another governmental related question claudio asked how do you see the u.s government uh, or do you see the u.s government launching their own cryptocurrency backed by gold yeah i have very strong thoughts about this so uh <laughs> so uh the specific incarnation, I think, backed by gold, we can sort of set that aside for a second. Uh, in general, I think I hear a lot of people talking about how governments might regulate crypto or ban crypto. Uh, and, and there is some risk of that. I think the bigger and uh, scarier potential risk is that governments fully embrace crypto in the wrong way. Mm. Um, and so kind of back to this idea of, of privacy, right? Like, um do you really want uh, a government that you may not trust to have full visibility into everything that you are spending money on every mm-hmm. day and every transaction and every person that you're transacting with, right? Uh, that has like very, uh, you know, there's like uh, fundamental human right to privacy sorts of aspects to that. And then like very practical, you know, if if your government can do it, odds are other governments can do it, yeah. uh, sorts of downstream consequences. And so, you know, increasingly, I think governments are getting sophisticated in the way that they think about technology and adopting technology and using technology. So I think the bigger risk is actually um, what Claudio is calling out is um, governments being really smart about adopting this in a way that um, makes, in my opinion, uh, the wrong trade-offs between sort of security versus privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think there's just not enough, there's not enough people, I, th- I think we're s- so many people are worried about governments banning this stuff. Um, that we're not looking at the other side of it nearly as deeply of what happens if a government fully embraces it and but does it in the wrong way or what if a uh, a government that you may not trust even if you trust your government uh, if another government that you don't trust embraces it in a, in the wrong way is there a positive outcome in which a government embraces it creates for example yeah. US coin whatever it might be trump coin yeah, yeah <laughs> in the worst case scenario um where it's actually not not a negative thing or like yeah. you, you, we move from the dollar to US coin or whatever totally. it is uh possible yeah a lot i i think i absolutely i mean that's what's that's one of the great things i think about crypto is, is it is global and i think there are there are all sorts of opportunities for governments that are uh, especially smaller and more nimble and willing to adopt this stuff i think estonia has done a great job mm-hmm. of pioneering some of this stuff um i think singapore is poking around with this so there are definitely places between voting or um making it easy to file your taxes um, to, uh, you know, uh, making the banking system more efficient. There are, there are lots of places, I think, where, where um, large existing institutions could adopt this, and that would mm-hmm. be great. Um, or, you know, even making stable coins. Like, you know, maybe some government should just say, hey, look, we, we yeah. have $500 billion and you yeah. trust us, and we're just going to issue stable coins, and now actually crypto can be a real thing. Um, so I think there are lots of positive ways governments could play um, in this space as well, and hopefully some will. Yeah, yeah. Dubai's been pretty good about that. They said hmm. that 
um, like all visa applications and some other documents would be um, on the blockchain by year example. 2020. Yeah. Um, so it, it ended up like it's going to save them over a billion dollars a year and just Whoa. being more efficient. So they've been pioneers in the space. And I know Consensus, the company works really closely with them. Um, and another, yeah, I completely agree with everything you said. Um, what's crazy is Venezuela already issued their own. Oh, the petrodollar. Yeah, the yeah, which they claim, uh, their $5 billion was <laughs> raised in the presale, but they haven't proved it. Um, but what's crazy is that there's all these sanctions against Venezuela and now there's this foreign capital coming in yeah. apparently to, to fund this. And so you, you run into all these issues where like now you're, you're supporting a sanctioned country financially. And so, um, that, that'll be really interesting to watch how that plays out. Right. Well, I mean, you see every day how little the average, you know, normal person cares about these sanctions between yeah. borders. So it's like, I don't know, yeah. I'll buy something in Venezuela or Mexico or it doesn't matter. Yeah. 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 yeah it's fascinating. Uh, all right. Another question. Uh, Naveen Mishra asked, what would be the best onboarding ramps for adoption and what roles will oracles have in decision making hmm. in the future? Uh, so best onboarding ramps for adoption. I mean, honestly, I think it's something like Coinbase. They do a really good job of yeah. just linking up your bank account and just purchasing cryptocurrencies. Um, so I, I think that just having a nice user experience there is really important. Um, I think the more interesting thing for me is uh, what role will oracles have in the decision making process. So um, I'm fascinated with this idea of um, decentralized oracles. So you could essentially have um, a system like Augur, which is a prediction market um, platform um, where anyone can create a prediction market on it. And the the past issue with prediction markets is they often get shut down by uh, regulators just because it's kind of closer to gambling. But in, in prediction markets on top of Augur, no one can shut this down. So you can really have these um, markets operate. And so people can start creating um, markets where essentially you measure the citizens' happiness, you measure um, GDP, you measure all these different statistics of a different of a country, and you can have um, people betting on the outcome of whether or not a different policy is going to increase or decrease um, these statistics. And from there, policymakers can now start making their decisions based off the outcome of this, and that's called futarchy. And I, I just think that is so cool because it, people are actually putting their uh, money where their mouth is at this point. So like they might yeah. say one thing, like, yeah, I really support this policy, but if if they're actually betting on it, then that's right. that's more, uh, I think, a, a stronger signal. So I, I, I think that that's going to be something that is totally new that um, that these systems aren't able to to produce. So yeah, the only thing I'd add on the uh, onboarding piece of it is I I suspect that the way most people will get onboarded uh, will either be very directly like Coinbase, mm-hmm. it's like they know what they're getting into, they're, they're buying um, into a crypto. Or it's going to be totally opaque to them. They're actually not going to realize at all that what they're doing is interacting with blockchain and crypto. They're just doing a thing that you couldn't do before. Right. Um, and it's just going to be so uh, it's going to be so sideways, and that people just won't realize that that's actually what's happening. And I, and I suspect those native use cases will be that way. Um, and so I think you know it's an interesting question of what percentage of people onboarded into the space do it very directly through something like Coinbase, or uh, they just happen to do a thing and that happens to sit on top of crypto. Kind of it kind of reminds me of. Um, you know, like several years ago, we used to talk about mobile companies. So right now we talk about crypto totally. companies. And, yeah. and in some point in like the next five years, it's not going to be that you're a crypto company. It's that you offer some value to the people who use your product. And it just so happens that you sit on top of blockchain or use yeah. crypto economics or whatever. Um, and so I think that will actually be how a lot of this stuff goes mainstream is in a way that people don't even 
associate directly with crypto necessarily. Yeah, I think I like I would bet 100 percent on that, because if you you, know, you ask the average person like, so what language is Facebook in? Yeah, exactly. like, Why? What? Yeah, what exactly. What's a language? Why do I care yeah, about exactly. this? Uh, and you, you see it um, when people pitching their companies. Totally. They're like, we have the fastest implementation of Python you've ever seen. Yeah, and you're totally. like, no one cares. No, <laughs> no user cares. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. Good point. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming in, guys. This has been really great. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for, having for having us. us. All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, you can find the transcript and the video at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, it would be awesome to give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcast. See you next time.